All right, if you turn your Bibles to Psalm 51, the title of the message today is called The Restoration of Joy. The Restoration of Joy. We, we had spent time over the preceding weeks, we'd spoken about, we initially spoke about, um, uh, uh, about depression and depression within a Christian, um, an unusual place to find depression. It's not a place that we would expect to see depression within a Christian. And yet we see it presented both in Scripture and within our own present reality that depression can indeed come upon us. Um, But we also saw within Scripture that it's not its natural place. We saw that that is not how we are to experience this wonderful time that we have as Christians being saved. Um, So from that point, we decided to go completely opposite to that and speak about joy Um, because that's what we desire to have. We desire to have joy. And we'd we'd already gone through three different messages with regards to joy. Um, This morning's sermon is actually going to be bringing those two together and we find them illustrated here in this psalm by King David. Um, It's a joining together of what it is that it can actually take away our joy, what it is that can ruin it, that can injure it, or that can at least weaken our joy as Christians. Um, And that's not what we want to be living life like. We want to be living life in perpetual joy. So um, so it's it's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. What we have here, and I'm not going to go through and reread the psalm again, there'll be more than enough found within the within the sermon, but um, verse 12 is the key point where he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. This is a request to God for the restoration of joy, a restoration of joy. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer and we'll, uh, we'll come into this, um, this, this passage. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks, dear Lord, not only for the gospel, not only for the work that our Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross, though tremendous and incredible and almost without uh, the ability to comprehend, yet we also give you thanks, dear Father, for the wonderful word of God. This incredible volume, dear Lord, speaks to us and speaks to our hearts. It teaches us, it encourages us how to live and how to walk as Christians, dear Father, that are also racked with the flesh. We pray, dear Lord, that it would be a blessing to us this morning. We pray, dear Father, that this sermon would find a place within our hearts. And we ask you, dear Lord, that your word not return void, but each one of us will receive some precious insight to this wonderful passage. We thank you in Jesus' glorious name. So, just to consider for a moment, you can't restore something and the king can't ask for something to be restored that wasn't already previously experienced. Okay, it had to be previously experienced. Nothing can be restored that was not already previously in store. Okay, the king had possession of this and, and, and at this time it was lost to him. This joy was lost to him. He once experienced the joy of his salvation, but something had occurred which, which ruined that same joy. Something to which the king has now come to make request 
that the joy of his salvation might be restored him. You can't, um, you can't recognise something as being lost and you, and, and, unless you can recall its gain. Okay? We, we don't restore uh, a new building. You restore a building back to its previous state, one that's been dilapidated, obviously. Um, you can't restore money that wasn't previously in possession. I can't restore back to you that which I didn't take from you, for example. And in just the same way, joy cannot be restored that was never previously experienced. David experienced joy. He was a saved man. He received and had the gift of the Spirit of God. God had given it to him and blessed him with it. And now, at this particular time of his writing, we've got these words where he's desiring for that to be restored, this joy. And we see his joy. We see his heart panting after God. The Bible says, as the heart panteth after the water brooks. That's the deer. It's another word for deer. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God, in Psalm 41. And that's generally accepted that that's the Psalm of David. David gives reason for his rejoicing. He brings understanding as to what it is that is the cause of his joy. In Psalm 33, he says, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness. And judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You can go through the wonderful Psalms of David and you can see his joy. You can see it. And we, we praise him for that joy. And we praise God when we are joyful, don't we? That's what we do naturally. We praise God when we are joyful. But you'll notice something really interesting. Scripture never presents joy um, as being lost due to circumstance and that's something that a lot of people really struggle with can I really have joy when things go bad in my life according to scripture and according to experience the truth is yes yes we can matter of fact scripture is is filled with this it's the unique position of those that are born again it's the unique state of those who have the spirit of God within them and it's unique because the world doesn't experience this in the world, when circumstances are bad and things are catastrophic within their lives, they are miserable, absolutely miserable. But to the Christian, with respect to circumstance, it seems to draw us nearer to God. It seems to draw us closer to Him. And for some reason, we have a peace that passes understanding. It's the unique state of the Christian, very unique. In 1914, on the night of April 14th, the RMS Titanic sunk in the North Atlantic Ocean. The survivors reported hearing some of the orchestra and the crew on board singing the wonderful hymn. <laughs> Chokes me up just thinking about it. Nearer my God to thee. How incredible. How incredible. It was just before it tilted up and sunk. You know, nearer my God to thee. They're singing unto the Lord. The crew doesn't leave the ship. They stay with the ship. 
they go down with the ship. They knew that the end of their life was at hand. Nearer, my God, to thee. Tell me that that is something that the world experiences. Really? The world doesn't experience that. This is the unique state of the Christian. It's those who are born again with the Spirit of God that even in circumstance they have joy. And we know this. Paul's own example, he says, he learned in whatsoever state he is in therewith to be content. A text he wrote in a prison cell. Not a prison cell with televisions and billiard tables and gymnastic equipment or anything like that. No, no, this wasn't that prison cell. This is a very different prison cell. Yet, in whatever state he found himself in, therewith to be content, he is writing to encourage others. Would they not be encouraged knowing that he wrote that from prison? And we see that again, he encourages us in Romans where he says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us in Romans 8.18. James encourages us and he says, count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Count it joy, actually count it joyful to fall into diverse temptations. And he goes on and he speaks about how that builds up patience and hope within us. And even Jesus, our Lord, who said, we are blessed, blessed when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's not the experience of the world. No, no, that's not the experience of the world. If someone says something bad about me, I get offended. I get offended. I get hurt falsely when they accuse you falsely. That was wrong what they said about me and I get hurt and I get offended. Jesus says to rejoice, to rejoice. Now, as a Christian and you're writing things and you might be writing things and posting things on Facebook, for example, I can guarantee you there will be snide comments made by the things that you might say. Rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Completely antithetical to how the world is. So those who are born again don't get offended that easily. We don't need to get offended that easily because, you know, the thing is, when you know God is the one who loves you and you've experienced that love through salvation, you don't feel offended. You don't feel offended. Look, you, you, you start to understand where people are at. You start to understand and comprehend that they're struggling too. And I can't be offended for that. I know who loves me. And if I know that he loves me, then it really doesn't really matter if anybody else loves me or not. He does. And that is the most important thing that I could ever possibly gain. Don't get me wrong, I'd be upset if I found out that my wife didn't love me, especially after a big holiday. <laughs> but I still have joy in the Lord, you know. So this is the contrary state of those who are born again. But what we find, though, not circumstance causes our destruction of our joy, ruins our joy, injures it, weakens it. It's not circumstance. And we don't find circumstance here in this passage. What we find that ruins and weakens and injures our joy is sin. Anything that turns us away from God. And it could be an actual sin, a physical sin, or it could be simply 
just not giving God the time that we enjoy to give Him, spending time with Him. And, and it's difficult, even on holidays. I, I find it a struggle on holidays because it breaks my, my normal routine. So I enjoy coming back home, locking myself up in my room and just pouring out my heart to the Lord. But during that period of break, that, that time that I spend with the, with the Lord is, is lessened, I have to admit. Maria actually found it the other way around almost. She absolutely praised God and spent a lot of time with Him during, during our time away. But it was a wonderful blessing to return back and know where our joy comes from. It comes from Him. History of hindsight. So you'll know in this first point, you'll notice that the introduction of the psalm, and it says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, Important to realise that that is part of the inspired text. No, it doesn't come under verse 1 but it is part of the inspired text. There is no ancient manuscript that we have discovered that doesn't have that already in its text. Okay, it's an introduction and it provides context for us. David was already tried. He was already approved. He was at the pinnacle of his career as a king. We see that historically in the text, in Scripture. But it's probably a good idea to be able to go back to this historical point. You ready? Can we do that? Can we go back to this so you can understand and really see the scope of his sin and the background behind Psalm 51? Would you like to do that? Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, please. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. I want you to sit back and relax. Just enjoy the story for a little while as I read it to you and as I bring out this wonderful account. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to bring you, bringing it down to the 14th verse of chapter 12. So you've got it all in context. Okay, so sit back and enjoy the story. It's a wonderful one. Chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening, evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did. And how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house. And there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to, unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel 
and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah, Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto the place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab and there fell some of the people of the servants of David and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when thou hast made an end of telling the matter of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye, were, when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall, that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab did for did send him for, had Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them, even as unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thou shalt uh, thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee. For the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house. And he and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveller unto the rich man and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, that man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, 
and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbour and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son for thou didst it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. What an incredible story. What an incredible history. And what an incredible hindsight of history to have that brought to remembrance. David had broken so many of God's commandments at that point. He decided first to tarry at home when a time when kings go forth to battle. There was a time when the kings go forth to battle. But he didn't. He tarried at home, abdicating his responsibility to lead his military army. He coveted with his eyes the wife of another man and he committed adultery with her. He conspired to cover his transgression for the benefit of himself against men, ignoring completely that it is God who seeth him. He dishonoured his office against a man more honourable than himself in this instant. He conspired to murder, even using his own victim to carry and deliver the death warrant. Finally, the evidence has us conclude that he did kill and take possession. There's little distinction between his action and that of Jezebel and King Ahab with the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite in 1 Kings 21. If you remember that story, there's very little difference between what David did and what Jezebel and Ahab did to Naboth. And now it is known to King David that this thing, though hidden from man, was done in the plain sight of God. And this is our foolishness. When we think to do exactly the same thing, we think that our sin is in secret. Because no one else sees it. No one else is aware of it. Yet it's in the plain sight of God. Is God blind? Can God not see? I was told this weekend that... Um, excuse me... <coughs> That in Islam, there is a belief that Allah apparently sometimes turns in a particular direction and he can't see behind him. And so therefore they can sin because they know he's facing a different direction. So they have their prostitutes and they have their, their things at hand because Allah doesn't see when he's not looking at a given time of the day or the week of the month. I don't know when it is. Thanks, Sas. 
Is this true of God? Do you not see all things? Does he not even know the heart of man? We think to do things in dark places, we speak things in a corner so others don't hear, we conspire in our minds and, and plan our deceits privately, thinking none are aware. We lie, we gossip, we condemn, and we do all those things lacking the love we are commanded to share, thinking in secret, but it's not in secret. It's done in the plain sight of the one who judges our heart. We neglect the hindsight of our own history. We neglect the hindsight of our own history. And that's not what David did here. The Bible says, Through our hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. According to Scripture here, what we have is our storing up, our treasuring up. It's almost like a savings account. So all our deeds are put in store only to be revealed in that day with interest. With interest. David was blessed, however, to be reminded of his sin by a man who had the courage to confront him. David also had the humility and the understanding of reality enough to accept the truth. Many of us, however, are too proud to accept rebuke. We have our feelings hurt and we get angry. But not David the king. Not David the king. He was likened to a wicked, greedy and merciless king. David's own mouth confessed to the pitiless behaviour of this rich man. Nathan said, Thou art the man. David accepted the charge. For his recollections of his actions at the time betray the truth of it. He had the hindsight of his history. He had the hindsight of his history. We all have a history, friends. We all have a history. We all have that part of our lives that we don't want to bring up, we don't want to recollect. But without doing so, we cannot get to the point before our Lord that David did in Psalm 51, that repentant heart. We have to recollect it. As Christians, we've got to bring it up again. As Christians, we need to repent before the Lord. We need to acknowledge our offence. And if you're not saved, then you need to plead with the Lord, not only to reveal your sin to you, but also that he would forgive you and that you may be indeed saved. So now we come to Psalm 51, and what we have here is David's petition for purity. Psalm 51. Thou art the man, Nathan said. It was like an arrow piercing his side, those words sunk in to David. Like an arrow piercing his side. They, they pierced him so deeply, fear followed immediately as he realised that this thing is known. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Think of the mercy God gave David by making him aware that his sin was recorded and registered by God. I don't know what you'd feel like. Imagine driving your car every single day, racking up speeding fines, but not actually getting the fine in the mail. You're actually racking up fines. So you think you're good, pretty good. I'm speeding everywhere. I haven't got a fine yet. This is good. I'm happy. Only to be revealed maybe at the end of the year 
and you get all the tickets coming together at the end of the year. Could you imagine how you'd feel? I thought I was getting away with it all. You know, oh my goodness, look at this. You know, and I got late fees. This is the mercy of God when he reveals our sin to us when we commit it. And when you're born again, when you're born again, you have God within. You have the spirit of God within you. And he reminds you very quickly. I don't know about you, but he reminds me very quickly that I've sinned, that I've broken his commandments. And it's identified by a ruining, an injuring, a weakening of my joy. That's how it's identified, I know, in my life. David pleads first for that mercy. Verse 1, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He recognises his need to be cleaned by God for his sin. He knows that he can't cleanse himself. Verse 2, he says, Wash me throughly for mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David does what most of us do not do to our own hurt. He acknowledges his sin. We think that if we ignore our sin, it'll simply fail to materialise. And if we don't recognise our transgression, there's no need to be sorrowful. But not David. David the king is fully aware that the only way to be free of sin is to acknowledge both its transgression and to whom he is ultimately transgressed against. Verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou art judged. We would often choose to ignore the truth of our nature, even to go as far as to lie to ourselves that we are good. But David chooses rather to acknowledge the truth of himself as God sees him. And his comparison is to the one whose relationship he desires most, and that is the Lord. God is the same one who desires truth within, you'll notice in our text. Not merely action without. It's not our actions. It's not, it's not turning up to church every single Sunday that sees you righteous. Okay? It's not taking on a ministry that sees you righteous before God. It's not standing up and preaching behind a pulpit that sees you righteous before God. It's not giving alms to the poor that sees you righteous before God. It is that which is from the inside. It's the inside that sees you righteous before God. We have to be clothed with Christ. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. We think that we can cover our sins, that we can straighten a crooked path, that we can clean our own way and our own filth. But David recognised that only God can wash and make clean, and only the Lord can make our path straight. Only the Lord can wash away our sin. And he asks the Lord, and he says, Purge me, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This is David the king's petition for purity. And that's how we come to the Lord. We petition him for purity, that we might be made clean. The next part is the request, request for reconstruction. In our next section of this psalm, excuse me.
He says in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Time and events are going to see all buildings deteriorate. All buildings will deteriorate. None will stay new forever. No building restores itself. And the same thing happens with us. Time and events will see you struggle with sin as a Christian. None are perfect in the flesh, and there are none who live who do not sin. No person alive does not sin. You know, on the one hand, we feel like we can take encouragement from that. Hey, everyone sins. You know. But on the other hand, we can't take encouragement from that as a Christian because we grieve the Spirit of God and our joy is taken away. These are the things. What I'm talking about here are the things that take away our joy. I don't want you to be walking around joyless. I want you to be walking around filled with joy. That every day is a joyful experience. That every day you're singing praises unto the Lord. I don't want it to be a time where you're walking around in misery. So what I want to do is try to highlight to you that which ruins, injures and weakens our joy. Okay? That's what I want to do. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. And that's what sin does. That's what unfaithfulness does. That's what turning away from God does. John tells us that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Interestingly, in the very next verse, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's almost like a small summary of what we've been reading. So God is the one who restores, God is the one who does all this work and only God can restore to you the joy of your salvation. But you need to first recognise your lack. You need to first recognise your lack. That's key. That's key. We know that in the world, the desire of the world is to find happiness. And we've already spoken about that. You remember in previous messages, we, we spoke about how the goal of every person on earth is happiness. They want to be happy. And we've also looked at the philosophers and what the philosophers have actually said time and time and time again. They say that um, happiness comes when we have all the things that we desire. But there's a problem with that and that was discovered and, and related to us by Mortimer Adler. He said the problem with that is we don't have all the things that we desire until we come to the end of the days, our days. And that's why happiness is something that eludes the entire world. They continue to seek after happiness. If I get this, then I'll be happy. If I have that, then I'll be happy. I mentioned to you about my mum. You remember what she used to say to me. You know, if, uh, when you're maddy, I'd be happy. You know, when you have a house, I'd be happy. You know, I have a house. When you have children, I'd be happy. You know, I have children. When your sister, she maddy, I'd be happy. All right, so she, and she, you know, she, she didn't die happy. She didn't die happy. And Morton Radler had that wonderful quote, and he said this. He said, Man can only come to the possession of all good things only in the succession of his days and not simultaneously. And so happiness is never actually achieved but is always in the process of being achieved. When that process is, com is completed, the man is dead. His life is done. 
That's how the world is... Excuse me. <clears throat> That's how the world is looking for happiness. Can't find it. But, you know, the Bible gives us every indication that we are to rejoice daily, that we are to live in joy daily. And the only thing that stops our happiness, we already recognise it's not our circumstances. Okay? So it can't be our possessions. That's not what gives us happiness. It's not the difficult trials that we go through. That's not what makes us miserable either. Okay? Our happiness and our joy comes from our relationship with the Lord. That's it. You can have nothing and you have a relationship with the Lord and you're happy. You're joyful. You're filled with joy. And that's what we need. That's what we're looking for. And that's all that David, the king, seeks after here. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And you know what? There's a natural consequence to having joy in your salvation. It finds itself um, working through our lives and there is an action that comes from there. It's the result of repentance. And that's one of the last points here. This is the last point. The result of repentance. Remember, we need to repent of our sin and come to the Lord. Look at what he says. He says, Then, verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice... Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, and this is key. This is key. Look at the sacrifices of God here. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. It's almost like we need to be broken in spirit before we would come to the Lord. It's our offerings aren't going to give it. Doing the good things to make up for our bad things aren't going to do it. Self-flagellation isn't going to do it. Do you know that? you know that people actually flog themselves? You know, draw blood upon their own bodies? This is the sacrifice that I'm giving to you, God. Climb up those steps as Martin Luther did on their knees. We saw evidence of that when we were in Jerusalem. And people trying to give of themselves, kissing every step along the way. This is, this is my faith. This is an evidence of my faith. This is what I'm doing for you, God. What are we doing? We're trying to accumulate debt for God. Now he owes us something. Because this is what I've done to myself. No, 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 that's not the sacrifice. The sacrifice is a broken spirit. The sacrifice is a broken spirit. When I stood there with my fist clenched, yelling out to God, you will not beat me, I was like a wild horse. Wild horse, couldn't be tamed. I was rebellious against God. The God that I didn't believe existed, I'm shaking my fist at. No, 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 he had to break my spirit. It was the wrong spirit. It was a spirit of rebellion that I had. Same with a wild horse. Can't be tamed, can't be controlled. I need to be useful to God. I need to be useful. He was the one that created me. He's the one that put purpose in me. If he created me, he created me for a purpose, but it's no good if I'm living my own life and not fulfilling the purpose that he created me with. Am I going to be happy living my own life, trying to do my own thing, rather than that for which I was created? No. I'm going to find happiness and joy 
in fulfilling the role that God had created me for. Makes sense, yeah? Makes perfect sense. So that's what we have here. Can I ask you, though, I mean, when you're miserable and you're feeling terrible and you've got sin racked right through you and you're, um, and you're struggling with sin, um, how, how, how confident are you in sharing the gospel? What sort of work are you going to be doing after that? I can, I can imagine myself, you know, I'm miserable. What am I going to say? Hey, you can be saved from hell but struggle with unrepentant sin and be as happy as I am. You know? I don't feel like sharing the gospel when I'm struggling in sin. I've got to tell you, it's just, I just don't, you know. And the truth is, few people in the world are truly joyful and those whose ignorance is bliss can't be considered happy in truth either, you know. And I've, believe it or not, I've actually I've struggled at points where I've actually thought to myself I would, I would almost rather go back into the world. I would almost rather not know God because of my own struggle with sin you know because it created such depressing misery in my life you know I never felt that before strange though isn't it I know the truth now so could I go back I think of Neo in Matrix anybody ever watched that film I like that it was a great sci-fi film I loved it and Neo said to Morpheus I can't go back, can I? I can't go back. He's been made aware of reality in the Matrix, that it was just a dream. Morpheus says, no, but knowing the truth, do you really want to? You know? No. No, I can't go back. I can't go back. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. It's that simple. I don't want to ever go back to that. I've experienced the joy of my salvation. And if you've experienced the joy of your salvation, you know that it's attainable. You know that it's there. You know that it's available. You know that something is preventing you from the joy of your salvation. Something is preventing you. What is it? There's only one thing. We've identified it's not circumstance. It can only ever be one thing. It's unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness. Brethren, it's unfaithfulness. And the cure, the answer... It's David's psalm. David's psalm. Psalm 51. It's the answer. You see a broken and a contrite spirit. A broken heart. Before the Lord, broken, repentant. Acknowledging your offence. And the Lord will restore unto you the joy of your salvation. David knows, verse 16, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. When I was in school, my teacher made me write out a hundred lines on the board, on the blackboard. <clears throat> yeah, I could be naughty when I was in school. All right? I will not throw balls in the classroom, you know, and um, and I will not disrupt my fellow students, and I will not put pins on my teacher's seat. It was something I had to do to make up for my sins in class. <laughs> I had to do it to. Leave me alone. You've been naughty too, all right? It was things that I had to do to make up for my sins in class, okay? But no amount of self-chastisement, no amount of other sacrifices is going to work for God because he is the one who cleans. 
He is the one who cleanses. And the only thing that he accepts is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That is what God will not despise. That's the great key. Not only for joy to be restored, but salvation to be gained. You cannot gain salvation if you think you are right. You can't. It just won't happen. If you'll think there's nothing wrong with you, you're not going to be asking the God to fix you. You're not going to take a bath unless you know that you're filthy. If you think you're clean, what are you going to need a bath for? You know, you don't need a bath if you think you're clean. The result of repentance, this is my last statement. The result of repentance is not only the salvation of your soul, not only the restoration of the joy of your salvation, but a life lived in the hope that cannot help but be shared. A life lived in the hope that cannot help but be sure but be shared when you have that joy. And if you've never had this joy that David speaks of, if this joy has not been experienced by you on a regular basis, the only thing stopping it is your turning to your Saviour first in repentance and then continued in faithfulness. When your joy turns sour because your heart has again turned away from him, turn back again. Turn back again. And there will then soon come a time where joy will be the more natural state of your days. This, I promise, is true. And I believe the scriptures bear me witness. It will come. It will be your constant state. But you have to always return back to the Lord. There's nowhere else to go. It's a one-way street. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks to your Lord. We give you thanks to your Father for the wonderful joy of our salvation that we can experience and know. And I pray, dear Lord, if there are those here, dear Father, who need their joy restored, hear their prayer. Hear their prayer. Hear their cries to you, dear Father. If there are those here, dear Lord, who want to have within them a joy that doesn't pass away, a joy that would exceed their circumstances, if their circumstances is that which brings them down, then perhaps, dear Lord, they don't know you. And I pray, dear Father, that they would seek your face, that they would repent of their own sin that they would recognise it for what it is and that they would ask you, dear Lord, to come into their lives, to cleanse them, to wash them, to make them clean and to restore unto them something, dear Lord, that perhaps they have never had and that is a joy, a salvation, dear Father, that they could attain only in you. I pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to lead us, strengthen us, dear Father, in our faith, And help us always to return back to you, dear Lord, when we stray. And let us do it, dear Lord, with every effort and every ounce of understanding within us. And give you thanks to your Father for this service. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would bless us as we spend a bit of time in fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.